All right. Am I on? I'm on? All right. Well, how are you doing this morning? It sounds like you're pretty good. You want to just keep hanging out for a while? <laughs> hey, uh, one of the things that we take very serious here at Seacoast is the call really by God to be people who are being transformed. And, and we really want to provide opportunities here as a church to, that will change us. And it's not always about what happen, needs to happen in other people, but often it's what needs to happen in our hearts. And one of the things we did this summer that I thought was one of those very big stretching events is we uh, had VBS, but different than ever before, in that we asked our congregation to say, how would you like to host VBS in your neighborhood? Now, if you're like me and you're sitting out there when we announced it, you're thinking, not me. <laughs> And, but we did have some people take us up on the offer, and I'm, and I'm on staff too, so I have no excuse, but <laughs> Samantha Vigil is one of those, and we just wanted to uh, bring up and hear a little bit about how that went and encourage us with that. So uh, tell us a little bit some of the highlights of your VBS. Well, um, first of all, when they announced uh, the VBS idea, I was sitting out there thinking, how awesome, I could do this. And then I went home and said, no, no, I don't <laughs> want to do that. It's too daunting, I'm too afraid, no way. Um, and, uh, still kept thinking about it, but didn't think it was something that I could do. I didn't think I had the resources or, or the knowledge enough to even take something like this on. Um, and then I uh, got a phone call from Mary Jane who said, are you sure this isn't something you want to do? And I took that as a sign. So I said yes and, um, kind of took it from there. Yeah. Well, how'd it go? It was amazing. Um, I will say Mary Jane put together, the programs put together so easily. Everything you need is right in there. Um, I had a ton of amazing helpers, Julie Thompson, Melissa Durant, and I don't know if Debbie Tukach is in here, um, many others as well as their kids helping me through it, which was, I could not have done it alone. Um, I think my biggest fear was, number one, not having the resources I needed, but number two is kids not wanting to come back. <laughs> so that would have been really bad when they went home and said, don't make me go back. <laughs> so that was a big fear. Um, however, that did not happen. We started out with 12 kids, and by the end we had 19. All right. So that was pretty exciting to see yeah. these kids, yeah. <laughs> so that was, not, that was not us. That was God's work through us, getting these kids. They were having a great time. Um, again, um, it was just a really, really neat experience, seeing, seeing these kids um, embrace God. Probably one of the two neatest things was um, when we had, we had three-year-olds to 11-year-olds, so it was quite a wide age range. Um, and the three-year-old sat up to do his Bible verse, and we did little motions to the Bible verse, and every single kid was clamoring to do the Bible verse with the three-year-old who set, set uh, the stage, which okay. was pretty neat. And then another moment that was pretty great was um, we opened it up to prayer one day, and three of these kids stood up and prayed in front of the entire group, wow. which I thought was pretty special, too. That is. That's great. So tell us a little bit about, uh, okay, so your initial response was, yeah, maybe, but... Uh, so how do you work that? How do you feel like you've been changed by that? Going from hey, I don't think I can do that to where you're at now. Um, that was a good question. <laughs> um, I would say, take the step, trust God. Um, it's pretty amazing to see God's work not only through the adults who helped me and through myself and and just the encouragement we got through God's work through these kids um, to help bring it all home and have it just be an amazing experience that we were kind of sad when it ended and actually, Mm. um, missed the kids when they were gone. So I would say that was probably the biggest touching moment was just having Mm. that, that God love together. Great. Well, thank you so much. Can I have the team, if you helped out Samantha and her team, uh, for VBS, can you just stand up so we can just stand up? We're going to make you do it. Uh, Let's thank them. 
Thank you, Samantha. I, I was so encouraged that they did this and uh, just encouraged to take that step of faith, really, to go for it. It is uh, totally encouraging. So, um, And I'm glad that kids did come back. <laughs> That's always nice when that happens. Um, do every week teaching. Will they come back? <laughs> Great. Uh, pray with me as we begin or continue with our morning. Lord God, I, I thank you for the ways that you work. And uh, sometimes it's when we, we're not sure what you're doing. And t- sometimes when we're afraid uh, of the call, uh, God, I, I just thank you that you're gracious and loving and, and powerful and that you can use us even when we sometimes are so seemingly unusable. So I thank you. And this morning, God, I pray that this would be about you, that my words would be yours. And as I teach, I would learn. And Lord, uh, let your name be lifted up in this place. In your name, amen. There's a story in Scripture in the Old Testament, in the book of Second Samuel, where Nathan the prophet approaches King David. And he tells him this story. Now, the story he tells is about a couple of people in his kingdom. Now, King David, he was the king on the throne over Israel. He had an army. He had a palace. He had wives and concubines. He had power. He had everything. And so Nathan approaches him, and he tells David a story about some people in his kingdom. The first is about this family that were kind of servants. They were very poor. And this family was able to scrape together enough money to buy one little lamb. And this family, all they really had by way of possessions was their one little lamb. And as time went by and they they got older, they still just had their one little lamb. In fact, Nathan said this family grew so so attached to this lamb that at night when the children would lay down, the lamb would lay its head on the pillow. It was part of their family. And they had just that one little lamb. And then Nathan told about another family in the kingdom who was this wealthy family. And this was a large landowner. And... He had whole flocks of sheep and herds of cattle. And one day, a traveler came to the wealthy man and said, Hey, I need a place to stay. So the wealthy man said, Come in and gave him a place to stay. But he was unwilling to take from his multitude of sheep and of cattle to supply food for this traveler. Instead, he went to the servants and took his one little lamb. And he killed the one little lamb and served it as a feast for the traveler. When David heard this story, he was irate. He said, that man deserves to die. At the very least, he better pay this back fourfold. This is ridiculous. What's going on? Who is this man? And Nathan looked at David and said, oh, David, you are. You're that man. You see, because right before this event, David, who had everything he could want, decided to take the wife of one of his faithful servants, one of his soldiers, He took the wife of someone else and and then to cover it up, had that man killed and and thought he got away with it. Until Nathan approached him. He said, David, you're that man. And and see, in this story, David, or we see that David possessed this unique ability that you and I have as well. It's that unique ability to find the fault and what is wrong in other people while at the same time conveniently ignoring our own shortcomings. You see, it's kind of human nature, isn't it? It's really easy to point out what's wrong with everyone else around you, the sins in their lives, the shortcomings, the things that they do wrong, but it's so 
difficult to face the truth and deal with ourselves. So difficult. Jesus addresses this issue in the book of Matthew chapter 7. I invite you to turn there. And in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, we're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're almost done with this thing. And Jesus comes to this passage and and he starts kind of changing the tone a bit. In Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, he says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For the way you judge, you will be judged. And the standard of measure you use will be used against you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log that's out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, Jesus brings this issue up and, and there's a lot going on here. But he's talking about he's really addressing that desire inside to kind of point fingers and find what's wrong, yet at the same time, conveniently ignoring our own hearts. And in this little this story, a couple things to understand. First, he says, do not judge. He starts off with that. This is the word krinas in Greek. And, and really, it's a word that kind of designates to pass a final judgment uh, used in courts to kind of pass down a sentence. It's a judgment that usually comes with condemnation. So it's not just saying like, uh, you know, make, having an opinion, but it's to pass a judgment to say, oh, this is where I place you. And it comes with condemnation. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. And then he starts approaching it and saying, the reason why. And he gets to this, this little illustration. And this illustration is great rabbinical, uh, an example of rabbinical teaching where they use story and hyperbole. And in its original context, Jesus is telling this story. And it's meant to be really humorous. And, and I was trying to explain it to my wife on how it's really funny. And I was kind of laughing. And she's like, you are such a nerd. But, um, but Jesus, in telling this story, his intention was for the crowd to hear him and kind of laugh at the ridiculous nature of their illustration. Because he wanted them to see a point. He goes on and he says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and ignore the log in your own? Now, the word speck in Greek is karpos. And karpos is... It could mean like a piece of sawdust or a splinter, but it was also used as a Greek idiom to mean, oh, that's nothing. It's something that's so minute. You don't even know it's there or care that it's there. So it's intentional that he uses this word karpas. Like, why do you worry about something that's nothing in your brother's eye when you have a dakos or a, a tree, a log, a beam that's holding up our ceiling sticking out of your own eye? Now, the story really, Jesus is kind of illustrating something that looks something like this. (laughs) And it's as if you're walking around and saying like, hey, you you got something in your face. (laughs) You have a little speck there. Can you get that speck out of your eye? It's really distracting to me. Do you know how ridiculous you look with that speck in your eye? You need to get rid of that. I mean, come on. (laughs) That's the story. That's a picture he's painting. And so I'm glad that I'm not the only one who thinks that's funny. But it was intended, the people would be laughing and thinking, no, that's ridiculous. And Jesus compares that to the sin in our lives. And said, often that's what we look like. We walk around worrying about something that might be minute or a small thing. And at the time, we have a tree growing out of our face. 
And he says, you need to deal with your own tree growing out of your face. Look at your own life. He goes on to say, you hypocrite. Remember, we looked at that word last week, the word for actor. You're just trying to fake it. You're trying to put on a mask and hide what's really there. Deal with the log in your own eye first. So this morning, I I titled this How to Pass Judgment, and really in How to Pass Judgment, what I want us to look at is how to deal with sin. How do we approach sin? And it's not just the sin in our lives, but the sin in others, which, by the way, I do believe that Jesus is not saying don't ever deal with sin in someone else's life. Once you have the log, you've dealt with the log in your own eye, you can clearly see the speck in your brother's eye. So there is a time and a place to talk about this in someone else's life. I, there isn't a time and place to be the condemning judge, unless you're God. But there is a time to deal with sin. So this morning what I want to do is look at how do we approach this issue of sin and not be people who are walking around with trees sticking out of our head. And in order to do that, I need you to bear with me for a few minutes. So I'm going to take about 10 minutes to kind of recount the story of Scripture. Okay, so the whole Bible in 10 minutes, and there's going to be about eight minutes where you're going to feel like it's not relevant at all, and then I'll bring it back in, but just bear with me, okay? Sound good? So to start off with, to understand this issue of sin, we need to understand the whole story. And the story is, in the beginning, God created. It starts with God initiating something, and he creates. He has this beautiful creation. He says it's good. And then on day six, he does something different than the rest of creation. On day six, we find that he creates mankind in his image. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. And he says, rule over the birds in the air, the fish of the sea. He says, let us make man in our image. Now, just a quick little side note that, that is in the plural, let us make man. Hebraically speaking, this is still referring to one God. It's kind of a hint of the Trinity in the Old Testament. We can't get into it. That was free. Okay, so, but so he says, let us make man in our image. And that's something different. Now, what's the big deal here? He says, in our image, in our likeness. In modern Hebrew, we use that same word, betzel, to mean statue. And what is a statue? It is a representation of something or someone. It's not meant to actually be that thing. So God didn't say, I'm going to create many gods to run around and rule the earth. But I'm going to create something that will be my representation to the earth. What I create when I get to mankind, they will have the capacity to reflect my likeness to the rest of creation. It's unique with mankind. And that means that we have the ability to reflect the characteristics of God, such as the ability to create, to innovate, the ability to love, the ability for relationship, which, by the way, the Trinitarian relationship, God has already existed in relationship. We have the capacity for relationship. Those are all attributes that we have in our likeness. Now, there's a few we don't have. We don't have divine characteristics such as omnipotence. We're not all powerful. We're not all knowing. We're not omnipresent. Those are preserved for God. But the the outworkings of his character can be found in us, in the original creation. I'm telling you, relevance is coming. Just hang in there. All right. So that's the story. God creates us to bear 
his likeness, to bear his image. Now, in the original creation, we had a perfect relationship with God. We walked with God in the garden, we're told. There was no separation. There was one thing, though, in the garden that God said, I don't want you to have, and that is, please do not take from the knowledge of good and evil. This tree that represented the knowledge of good and evil. He said, I don't want you to have it. Now, in our humanity, often we think that God tells us is all about sin management, right? So we, we have this idea to think God just sets up life and says, I'm going to give some really fun things out there that I just don't want you to have because I'm God and I'll be cool. We kind of think that way, right? We think that God creates paradise and our question is, well, why did he say there's one thing you can't have? That's not fair. <laughs> but the one thing he said was the knowledge of good and evil. In Hebrew, the knowledge of good and bad. In other words, the ability to pass judgment and make determinations. Something that you can't do if you are a finite being. If you don't have all knowledge and all power, you can't even bear the burden of making judgments. In yourself, you're you're not perfect, so you can't bear that weight. It was God's mercy to say, I don't want you to live life under this. Yet, we said, oh, that's the one thing that will let us be like God. We're in the likeness of God. We want to be God. Give us that. So we went for it. And now there's sin. Now, all of a sudden, what's the first thing we feel was shame, embarrassment, because all of a sudden we could say, I don't measure up. You don't measure up. I have the knowledge of good and evil. I'm making judgments. And now I feel shame. What's the first act that God does? Punishes? Not. We sin and he kills an animal. An innocent animal. He kills the animal and takes the skin and makes clothes to what? Cover our shame. Though we, we had it all, we wanted more. We rebelled from God and he still says, okay, mercy. I'm going to cover your shame. So now we have an imperfect relationship with God. Five minutes from relevance. Perfect in relationship with God. It's now flawed. We have sin. He covers us. And then he says, now you can no longer live in paradise. Great. There you go again. God's a punisher. Keep us from something good. Right? No. Because if we lived in paradise, we would live forever. Physically, we would live forever in a state of separation from God because of our sin. God's mercy was to kick us out of the garden. So that we couldn't live forever. Again, sometimes we look at the the deserts and the wilderness of our life and say, see, God's punished me. Sometimes mercy is in the desert. That's another sermon. Okay, so. So the story is God creates you to represent him. We mess it up. We want sin. Even in that, he finds a way to reach out and say, I will restore what is broken. I will make whole what has been fractured. He initiates a plan that means his son is going to come and live on the earth as a perfect representation of the character of God. A perfect representation is in the life of Christ. That's why we study his life. Because when we look at Jesus, we see the father. We understand what the image of God looks like in the way Jesus loves and lives and interacts on the earth. So he initiates a plan and it's even better. First, he shows us what his image is and then. He makes the ultimate sacrifice to cover our spiritual state of fallenness once and for all. 
So all throughout scripture, we see this story of a God who creates something that's good, of people who want something more, who mess it up, but who continually says, I can make a way when you go off course. I will make all things new. I will restore what is broken. We also see stories, story after story in scripture of man falling short of our call to bear the image of God. Don't we? In fact, sin, I want you to understand that sin is when we say, well, it's missing the mark is the Hebrew word. But essentially it's saying it's not reflecting the true character of God. That's why when we say if you are a jerk to your wife and to your kids, that's a sin. Why? Because that is not the heart and the character and the nature of God. God is not one who will tear you down to elevate himself. He is one who restores, who, who provides mercy and encouragement and love. One who can forgive and reach out. When we are apart from God's image, it's sin. It's missing that mark. Okay, so now let's bring it all in. Well, how does this help us deal with sin? Okay, keep this background in mind, by the way. We're created to bear his image, to carry his name. We've messed it up, but he continually shows his true character. So how do we deal with sin? The first is we come to God with a humble heart. Now, when we understand the real story, how could we be prideful? When we understand the real story of God and who he is, how can we come to him and say, God, you know what? I I don't know. I know all have sinned, but I haven't sinned that much. How can we come and think that God is somehow uh, impressed that, you know, you only kind of fell short of his image. <laughs> You're only kind of not living up to what he called you to be. When we look at others and say, well, you know, I, I know we've sinned, but, you know, they sinned worse. <laughs> at least I'm more Jesus-like than they are. You think God's going like, oh, yeah, okay, that's good enough. We approach God with humble hearts when we understand the story because we know that we cannot bear his image rightly. We can't do it on our own. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says this. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what glory means in scripture? When we use it, it actually, it means the character or likeness of. You could use it for the image of. You could say, we have all sinned and fallen short of bearing the image of God. When we glorify God, we are reflecting his character and his likeness to the ends of the earth. That's essentially what's behind that word. It's, the, the word glory possesses this idea of the fullness of, in Hebrew it's kavod, which means the weight. All of the weight of God, it's his whole being. So when we fall short of his whole being, we fall short measuring up to who he's created us to be. We're not reflecting that image. You guys tracking? All right, good. (laughs) And when we understand that, our only response is to come to God with a humble heart. To come to God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I fall short. I fall short. I don't want to fall short, but I do. And you can look at your friends and your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, they fall short, but so do I. We all have missed the mark and God have mercy on all of us. Because without you and your grace and your mercy, we are never going to measure up. Without your spirit in our lives, we have no hope to attain something like that. 
So we, when we approach sin, we must come with a humble heart, recognizing that we all fall short. What's the next thing? It's this. To understand your place in the story. To understand your role in this story of God initiating this plan and saying, represent my name to the ends of the earth. Understand that you have a role in God's divine plan. I think this is just the worst idea God ever had. (laughs) I think it's a bad idea to take humans who are fallen and not say, I have a plan B. I think it was a mistake. He, he, He creates us. We fall short. And if I was God, I would say like, all right, start over. You guys are done. Let's do this again. I'm going to put that tree of knowledge a little farther away or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I would start over and say, okay, no. How can I let imperfect fallen people represent my name? I don't get that. But our God says, no, because I want the world to know that I can restore what's broken. Not only can I create, but I can reconcile. Not only can I uh, make something beautiful, I can make something that has now been turned into ashes and make it beauty again. Because nothing is out of my reach. It's in the nature and character of God to not give up. His love is unending. It wouldn't be his character if he said, fine, forget it, I'm starting over. His character is to say, no, are you kidding You think your sin is too big for me? You don't understand me. So when we understand our place in the story, we know that though we are fallen, we are called to reflect this glory. We are called to represent his name. Back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27, 28. It says this, God created man in his image. God blessed him and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. A Hebraic way of saying I'm creating you, and I want you to go and to join with me in my work of interacting with creation in God-honoring ways. You are my name. You are bearing my name. Later we find in Scripture, in Exodus chapter 3, there's this kind of funny story between Moses when he sees this burning bush. Even if you're not familiar with church, you've heard the story. And Moses sees this thing and, and, and interacts with God, and he says, Well, God, tell me your name. If you want me to go talk to my countrymen, I got to know your name. And God said, I am who I am, which I would say, well, thank you. That was helpful. (laughs) And really, it's uh, we don't have time to get into it, but it it, it has something deeper where God's actually saying, I I exist. I exist, although other gods you're going to interact with, they don't. I actually exist. But then he goes on and he... He gives them this name of Yahweh, and and it's even Jewish people to this day won't say the name. And when we do our academic writings uh, for uh, Jewish religion, we don't write that name out. But he says, here's the name. Tell him Yahweh, the Lord your God. And now in the name Lord, and that's in our Old Testament, every time we see it, it's the capital L-O-R-D is actually Yahweh. He said, this is my name. And you go and tell them that this is name the name of the god of the fathers of abraham isaac and jacob the name i am the god that you've been hearing about you hear how i interact you know who i am that's me i'm still alive and he gives them this name now later on in exodus chapter 20 god does this other thing it's the ten commandments and in verse 2 he says keep the name of the lord and keep it holy make it holy do not profane or use the lord's name in vain Now, 
Some of us think that that means at night when you get up and you stub your toe on your way to the bathroom, don't use the Lord's name in vain, right? No one in here. Okay, good. So uh, we, we have an idea of what that means, but really it's scripturally speaking, when we profane or even blaspheme the name of God, that means to take that which is holy and set apart and make it common. That's what it literally means. It means to poke holes in that reputation and make it just like everything else. So when we understand that our role in the story is to represent this name, all of a sudden the motivation isn't some sort of sin management, can I keep myself in a box, but it is I bear the name of God. I will keep this name holy and separate. Do you want to know why the world is so confused about who Jesus is? Because we have not bared his name well. We have not shown the world what the image and likeness of God is. That's why they're so confused. That's why so many people say, I would believe, except for I look at his followers and think, I don't want to follow a God like that. When we understand our place in the story is that we carry this name, it changes everything. Now, I love the Olympics. How many of you like watching Olympics? Yeah, a few of us. Good. A lot of us. Good. The reason it's one of those things like every four years for one week, I actually care how well someone's doing on the pommel horse. I don't know what it is. It's just it's one of those things, right? I'm just captivated and and staying up late to be like, why did I just do this and watch this? But yeah, I care. But why do I care? I care because there's 529 athletes over there who are wearing the name of my country on their chest. I care because when they bear the name of the United States, that kind of represents me. And and, and when we're good at women's badminton, I think, yeah, (laughs) bear my name. (laughs) You see, when when you understand what it means to bear the name, it carries on so much more than just this individual thing. That's why scripture's always pointed at a community. We have a role. We have a place in the story. How we interact with one another, how we treat our spouses and our kids and our parents, how we treat the the teachers of our children, our bosses, our employees. We are bearing the name of Christ to them. And when we walk around and we show the world that the name of Christ is all about finding what is wrong in everyone but ourselves, we're just showing that God is a God just bent on controlling who you are. Instead of being people who reflect his character and goodness and likeness, people who say, yeah, we we don't live for sin because we live for a name that's here, high and lifted up. We represent a God who loves those who feel unloved. We're willing to forgive someone who feels unforgivable because our God reaches out and forgives us. We understand our place in the story. Therefore, we know how we can deal with sin. With an attitude that says, there but for the grace of God go I, but I want you to know what our, how our God thinks about you. How would the world be different if all of a sudden his followers said, we want to bear the name of a God who's more concerned about the fact that you are broken and hurting than the fact that you are involved in a just horrific addiction. Instead of just saying, you need to get out of your addiction, we say, do you know that God loves you and loves your broken heart and wants you to feel whole? What if we were people who represented that name everywhere we went? What if we were people who represented to our neighbors and the people even who drive around us that Christians don't have to stress about the little things because we have a God who's in control? We don't have to drive 95 miles an hour cutting people off and making their days worse, by the way, because they're just getting mad at you. 
But we're saying, you know what? I can just, I can be relaxed here because my God is in control. I'm not going to elevate. I'm not going to make everyone around me upset at the way I live because, you know what? I, I want them to know that my God is in control of all this. I bear that name. Not the God who needs me to be in control. God forbid that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I mean, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says this. Sorry, I'm, I'm preaching this morning, so. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We all, beholding as in the mirror the glory of God, the image of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Paul has the audacity to say that we all look in the as if we're looking in the mirror, see the character and the likeness of God. That's a bold thing to say, isn't it? Can you look in the mirror and say, God, I see your character and likeness. You might. Can people around you see that in your <laughs> reflection? Paul says this is what we strive for, to reflect the glory, the likeness of God with ever-increasing glory, being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Know your place in the story. So we're humble. We understand our role in bearing his name. And then this, overflow with kindness, love, and grace. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, pick it up in verse 25, says this. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one of you, with your neighbor. For we are members of one another. Stop right there for a moment. Now, this is where we get to the point with when we understand that we are sinners too, so we come to God humbly. We represent his name, so our goal is to represent him. It's not about sin management, but about honoring the name of God. Is there ever a time to address sin with others? Well, yes, I do believe there is. That's why we have life groups here at the church. We don't do life groups because we read a manual that said churches have life groups. We do it because we value the act of journeying together. The act of holding each other up when we need someone to hold us up. The reflecting the likeness of God to one another. And sometimes to say, hey, I think the way you're treating your family is not the character of God. There's times when we need to speak with one another and say, hey, we need to draw you back in. But look at our attitude in that, though. Paul says, speak the truth in love. A lot of us like to stop at speak the truth, right? Speak the truth. Yeah, I got that. And then he gives some examples, and let's just jump down for the sake of time to verse 29. He says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only what is good for building up others, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away among you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, be tender-hearted." forgiving each other just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Do you see the attitude here? You speak the truth not so you can put someone in their place and elevate yourself. It's not so you can feel good about controlling the minions around you. We speak the truth and while we do it, we put away malice and anger and wrath. Essentially, we put aside that judgmental attitude that says, oh, well, I've got the standard and you need to live up. You know, wrath is reserved for one who can be a righteous judge. And there's only one and it's none of us in this room except for God. Sorry, did I just break the news to some of you? (laughs) Only God is the one who can sit in the throne of judgment. 
So when we encourage one another, when they're not reflecting the image of God, we do that with a heart that says, we love you, we forgive you, and we put aside all malice and anger. A while back, my wife and I had, were friends with a couple couples, and um, one person from each of these couples got involved in an adulterous relationship, which is completely sinful, and it's a horrific sin that has consequences within the marriage, has consequences, obviously, with their kids, with their friends, with their church, with their families. This is, this is one of those sins. God does not, spiritually speaking, sin separates, okay? An adulterer is as separated from God as a jerk. <laughs> but this happens to bear more tangible, visible consequences. There's no doubt about it. But this happened and they, they you know, each couple kind of went to counseling, tried to restore the, their relationships and failed. And they each got divorced. Several years later, those couples, the, the original people who committed adultery ended up marrying each other. Now, I don't believe that that's God's plan for their life. I don't believe God says, oh, this, is, this will be great. Of course not. That was destructive, hurtful, and it will have consequences for the rest of their lives. There's no doubt about it. But what happened during this is their Christian friends started saying, we need to take a stand against them. Now, I understand taking a stand against sin. But they said, we need to cast them out of our presence and not talk to them because of their sin. And I thought, okay. And they came to us and said, hey, you guys need to pick sides. To which we were unwilling to pick sides. And we said, no, you know. And me and my kind of arrogance, like, okay, we choose God's side. Um, but, but we thought, no, we, we don't want to do that. We stand against what they did. It's horrific. They know we stand against what they did. And when they got married, there's some who to this day say we can never talk to them again because they're in a new marriage that came out of a sinful situation. They can never be restored or forgiven. And, they, and that's just their posture they said no never we're speaking the truth to you in love they actually quoted and i thought well but you forgot to put away all malice wrath anger (laughs) you weren't tender-hearted you didn't do any of these things and i had to even check myself on judging those who are judging them but my wife and i decided no we are going to stand with everyone in this because we believe that our god is able to take that which is broken and make it whole again because we believe that somehow in the dirt and the ashes and in the dirty things of life, that beauty can rise. We believe that somehow, even when we make the biggest mistakes, that God's arm is not too long to reach that back and reconcile all things to himself. So we will stand with them and love them and pour out our love on these people, never saying we agree with what you did. They know we don't, but we said, but now we're here, now what? How can God restore and redeem this situation? And if we're people who say he can't, then what does that say about God? What does that say about our own lives? If there's people that you say they're unforgivable, what does it say about the forgiveness of God? It has bounds? His grace runs out? That's what you're saying. That's why people say, I can't believe in that religion because they know the state of their heart will never measure up. When we speak the truth in love, we can say what you did is wrong. 
We're going to, we're, and our first thing is we need to restore what you committed to in the first place. But then when that fails, you got to say, okay, how can we make this right? But you got to put away that malice and anger and wrath. That's God. That's his business. I believe he deals with us sometimes that way. But that's not your job. Because if you want to dish that out, then God says, okay, get in line. In fact, move to the front of the line. <laughs> I'm standing in the back. <laughs> I don't want that. I'm going to have the band come up, and we're just going to finish our time here. And as we finish our time, I just want us to take some moment to, some of us need to reflect in our own lives, and, and some of us have sin that we need to hand over to God and say, I know that I don't bear your name well. Some of us say, I know I have this issue, and I'm sorry, God, that I somehow think that this issue isn't that big of a deal, but it still doesn't reflect your character, and I'm sorry. Some of you need to ask forgiveness from someone else, and some of you need to, for the first time, offer forgiveness to someone that you're unwilling to forgive. We want God to move in this place and to work in our hearts and our lives. We want to be people who aren't always saying what's wrong with everyone else. We want to be people who say there, but by the grace of God, go I. Thank God for his mercy and grace. A few years back, I worked in a church where we had a new leader came in and we had a really hard time getting along. He and I just didn't get along. It was nothing major necessarily. Our, just, our personalities kind of clashed and... And we worked well out front, but the truth is, there was, there was conflict. And I was really, really good at finding out why, because it was all the things he did wrong. <laughs> it was easy. <laughs> I could point to his speaking style, his leadership style, his theology, everything. I was, it was so easy for me to find out why he was the problem. <laughs> and of course, God said, hey, okay, now let's deal with you and how you're part of the problem. In which I gave God my usual responses. Now, later. (laughs) And there was a day when I had to call up this person and say, I need to ask you to forgive me for the role I played in this issue, this problem. I'm sorry. He and I are not best friends today. (laughs) But a weight was lifted when I said, you know what? I have a tree growing out of my face. I see what's wrong with you and God saying, deal with your tree, Ryan. Deal with your tree. That's the issue. Pray with me. God, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your love. It's grace undeserved and it's, uh, for some reason, you continue to use us to represent your name. For some reason, you continue to ask us to bear your image even though we fall short. And God, in this place, I ask that you would just forgive us for falling short. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to reflect your true character. That you're a God about making all things new. That you're a God who gives second and third and four chances and a hundred extra chances. That you're a God whose love does not run out. And God, we want to be people who bear your name well. We want our community to know who Jesus is because they know us. And so we ask that you would transform our hearts. You would change us from the inside out. You would help us, God, by your spirit to reflect you in your name. We thank you, God.